Good to be with you guys today. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. Maybe we should all start this morning by putting our hands on our tummies and saying, help me, Jesus. Uh, for sake of review, we've been in a series called Extreme Life Makeover. I don't know if we have our makeover man that we can put up on the screen, but here he is. We've been going from head to toe talking about how to have our lives made over by Jesus and his word. So here we go with Sam, the makeover man. We started with the mind. We talked about mental might and how Jesus wants us to renew our mind. We went to the eyes and our makeover man that week was Lustful Larry, how Jesus wants to put a guard over our eyes. We went to the mouth, Chatty Cathy. And talked about how our mouths should be a wellspring, a fountain of life. Went on to our shoulder makeover. And we talked about the fact that God wants us to cast our anxieties, our cares upon him. Last week we had a very interesting week as God was stirring in our midst. But we talked about a heart makeover. We helped deliver Follow Your Heart from, uh, follow your heart from Alicia. From chasing after just all the dreams and desires of her heart. This week, we're talking about the stomach, a stomach makeover. Scientifically speaking, the stomach is a digestive organ found between your esophagus, your esophagus, excuse me. I've been an apple, so to me, I have apple products, the esophagus. So. <laughs> Some of you guys are like looking for that online. There's an eye product that I don't have right now. Uh, it's between your esophagus and your small intestine. Let me just uh, read to you. It secretes protein digesting enzymes called proteins and a strong acids to aid food digestion. Sent to it via the esophageal peristalsis through smooth muscular contortions called segmentation before sending partially digested food chimes to the small intestines. That's what we're talking about this morning is the stomach. But um, here's what I've noticed is that there are a lot of sayings about the stomach. Uh, you've heard some of these with me. You've heard people say, you know, my stomach is talking to me. It's kind of a weird saying. Can you imagine that? Hey, you up there. Stomach starts talking to you. My stomach is growling. Always a real awkward one on a date, you know, some pretty girl. So anyway, <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> I have butterflies in my stomach. That, this is really awkward when you think about the middle picture of butterflies floating around. You heard them say this, so one, of the, one of Winnie the Pooh's sayings, I'm a little rumbly in my tumbly. He has an iron stomach. I don't have the stomach for that. My eyes were bigger than my stomach. If that was true, that would really be weird, right? <laughs> that made my stomach turn. How gross would that be? You know, you look at something in your stomach. Actually... <laughs> so, you know, the stomach's so simple. If it's just a digestive organ, why do we have all these sayings? And I believe it's something that you know, that our stomachs are powerful. And when gone, when they go unchecked, they can really have a, a, a really dramatic effect on our lives. I want to begin this morning by looking at a really sad story in the Old Testament where two men, a father and a son, didn't have control over their stomachs. And it dramatically impacted them uh, in a very negative way. So look with me at Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 
24. This is the story of Jacob and Esau. So picking up in verse 24, it says, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her, in her womb. Verse 25, the first came out, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Can you imagine? Oh, how cute! <laughs> so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Verse 27, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man in open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom. Verse 31, Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear it to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. It's a really sad story, but so true that we often see in believers' lives, in Christians' lives, that for a fleeting momentary pleasure, we're willing to sacrifice a gift from God. Are you following me here? For because Esau was hungry, because his stomach was controlling him, he lost sight of the greater vision, the greater vision of having a wonderful inheritance passed down from his father Isaac. He lost sight of the greater vision, the, the vision of being blessed by his father, the vision of having authority and being a man with destiny. Because he was hungry, he forfeited it all. And men and women, I see this happening to believers all the time today. But it's not just, it's not just that. If we continue to look at the story, when you let your appetites go unchecked, it has disastrous results, not just on your own life, but on your relationships. When we look at Isaac in that passage, we see that he loved the taste of wild game. And because Esau was a hunter, it says that Isaac actually, actually loved him. You following that? Because Esau provided something that Isaac thought was tasty, he actually gave him his affection. Now, this is going to have disastrous results in chapter 27. We're not going to look there, or, or you can't flip there, but let me just kind of give you a synopsis of what happened. Isaac gets old, and he thinks he's died. And so he knows it's time to speak a blessing over his son. Now, this is normal in the Old Testament. The father would call them, the sons, and he'd bless them. But he'd always give the older son, the oldest son, the inheritance. So what Isaac does is he says, Esau, it's time for me to give you a blessing. It's time for me to give you an inheritance. What I want you to do is go out and get me some wild game that I love so much. When you bring it back and prepare it, then I'll give you a blessing. Now, you probably heard the story of how Esau despised his birthright by being hungry and wanting a bowl of stew and Jacob tricked him, right? But have you ever thought that this food issue actually started with the father Isaac? You know, he didn't need to have some food to bless his son. If you study the Old Testament, fathers are always giving blessings without a meal. It's kind of like me saying, Hudson, I, I really want to bless you, but first run down to Taco Bell. I love those new triple-decker burritos. 
Come back with a burrito, then I'll give you a blessing. Right? A blessing should never be tied to an appetite. You satisfy my appetite, and then I'll bless you. You follow me, people of God? But Isaac tied it to that, and so he sends his son, Esau, off on a journey to kill, you know, some big deer or something. Esau goes out to do it. You know, I want to please my dad. While he's doing that, Jacob and his mother, Rachel, go, ah, this is our moment. Our dad, if we just prepare the right meal and I go in there, then he'll be happy. And so Jacob comes in. They just kill some, some little sheep and, you know, fillet it up and bring it in and Go before they go before Jacob. Uh, they go before Isaac, and Isaac blesses Jacob. Now it would have never happened if Isaac would have just said, "Esau, come in, let me bless you." But because of the appetites of his stomach, something happened to him that he would have never wanted to happen. Esau comes back after he kills the deer. He grills it up, brings it to his dad. But the problem was Isaac had already laid hands on Jacob. And spoken a blessing. He'd already given him the inheritance. He'd already given him the authority over his family. Esau comes in with the deer. He's going out hunting. He comes in, Dad, I've got just what you wanted. Isaac freaks out. Oh, my son. I, I totally just gave it to your brother. You see, when your appetites start controlling you, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the relationships around you. We think it's just affecting us, but when our appetites go unchecked, it's affecting every relationship around you. So let me just go with the, the stomach issues to begin with. I noticed that when I started giving my life to God, he just systematically started taking me through each issue of my life. I, I realized it wasn't just a, a Sunday school deal. It wasn't just a, a Bible deal. What the pastor was talking about on Sunday mornings, that oftentimes God would start convicting me about something. And I realized this about food. I was really into eating. When I was sad, I ate. When I was happy, I ate. When I was angry people, I ate. When I wanted to celebrate with friends, I ate. When I was bored, I went and had something to eat. You name it, I, when I liked a girl, I went and ate. It, it didn't matter. I, just, I found, and maybe you found yourself, you know, all of a sudden you're like standing in front of the refrigerator with it open. You're like, how did I get here? I was just in another room. And all of a sudden you're just looking at the refrigerator. You say, I Somehow, our stomachs just control us. The, you've heard the saying, a, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And we definitely saw that true with, with Isaac. We saw that true with Esau. Now, the, the interesting thing about this is that Philippians 3 talks about it. Can we put that, that verse up on the screen? It says this. Paul was talking about a whole group of people in the city of, of Philippi, and he says, their destiny is destruction. Boy, that's not what I want to be. It says, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Why does it say that it's their God is their stomach? I don't think because someone's put up a stomach, you know, up on a pole, a gold stomach, it's a old stomach, old gastric juices, you know, they're not... They're not looking at this thing. What, what it is, is they're saying it's their God because it controls them. Right? Have you ever met someone that, that they start getting hungry and they become a jerk? 
I, mean, some of you, I see some of you nudging each other right now. Your stomach actually controls. You know, you, you see this in the, in the party scene. I remember being in the party scene and all of a sudden, you know, guys would just be going, beer, 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 beer. You know, just following after their stomach. And it actually becomes your God and it's very dangerous. I realized that I cared a lot more about the pleasure of eating and the taste of food than I did about honoring the Lord. And what I, what I didn't have in right perspective was this verse in 1 Corinthians 6.19, if we could put that up. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. Your body is the temple. Your body is the temple. Here's an interesting thing that, that I've noticed. I, uh, I, I travel quite a bit, and a lot of times when I'm traveling, I'll go for a walk in the morning to spend time with God. A lot of times when I'm in cities, I'll find these beautiful Catholic cathedrals. And here's what I love about them. They're always open. They're open for you know the faithful to come in and pray. And I'll walk in these beautiful cathedrals. And you know, you've got this stained glass... You've got this ornate architecture. And the interesting thing I notice is that they're never defaced. There's never graffiti. People have come in and stolen things, even though they're open to the public, and there's no security guard standing there. But I notice that there's kind of like an awe and reverence that comes out over you when you walk into one of these temples, right? You, you walk in, and I even notice, I kind of tiptoe in and kind of sit down in a little pew. Try to be like little mouse. Everyone's doing that. Why? I, I think it's because it's just even the most ungodly person. There's just kind of this awe and reverence about we're in the temple of God. You know. But here's what we know in Scripture: is that God doesn't dwell in a building made by human hands. That's what Scripture says. Now I'm all for buildings dedicated to God, but I want to tell you where God does dwell. Right here. Your body is the temple. But the crazy thing is we do things to our body that would never do to one of those beautiful Catholic cathedrals. You know, we, we walk in with such reverence. We sit down all quietly. But with our own bodies, we just trash them out. Right? I think mean, we eat Twinkies for crying out loud. I, I don't even know what that white stuff is in a Twinkie. You know? I, I know it's not from the Lord. It's, it's one of the devil's greatest tools. Twinkies like will last for 50 years. And they're... If you're part of a family that created the Twinkie, I'm not against you. But, but, but I find this, I mean, we trash, we trash on our bodies, we put all kinds of chemicals in them, we gorge, we, over, we hurt our bodies, I mean, we do all these things that we never do to a, a, a beautiful cathedral. Why do we do it to our bodies? Now, here, here's, here's two things I find. I find there's, there's either people that, you know, you're, you're like me in, in college. And, and don't ever think this. Don't ever think, well, because the person's not overweight, that they don't have an eating issue. I was blessed with one of these power, uh, you know, metabolisms. My metabolism, you know, in there. But just because you can eat anything doesn't mean that your eating's in control. Right? 
So some of us, we're just gorging, we're binging Barney, right? <clears throat> On the other side, some of us, we, we become hyper-controlling. And that's when you have these, these obsessive diets, and, and it even can spin into very destructive behaviors like anorexia or bulimia. Both of them are the fruit of not having our stomachs submitted to the Lordship of Christ. God wants us to submit our stomachs to the Lordship of Christ. Listen to this incredible study that the New York Times did of believers. This is These are our great brothers up in Saddleback Church, just up, up north in Orange County. In 2011, the New York Times wrote an article about this diet that Saddleback went on that they based on the Bible. And in it, they found that there was a 50% better chance of people having a transformed life when it comes to eating if you did a diet in a community, in a small group community. Isn't that interesting? They found that 72% of the people that did this at Saddleback, that they lost weight and got into better health. These statistics blew away secular diets. And this shows, again, that when we walk things out in accordance with the Bible and community, it can transform our lives. So much so that the New York Times picks this up of this church in Orange County. Now, I don't want to just talk about dieting this morning. I wanted to mention that because I know that God wants to, to, to do that in our lives. And I want to get on to some other appetites. But before I do that, let me just speak very practically to you this morning. Because you don't come to church just for a spiritual transformation. We're a holistic person. We're a body, soul, mind, spirit. And you know that what you do with your body affects your spirit. And how your spiritual life is going affects your body. So let me ask you this question. If you're taking notes, write this down. Have you ever asked God what he wants your eating to look like? Have you ever asked him? Who's in control of your consumption? Is it you or is it God? See, some of you, it's freaking out right now even thinking that question, but I want to tell you that the Bible says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And God wants to transform you and he wants to bless you. Some of you are thinking, man, if I do that, all I'm going to eat is collard greens and turnips. And I don't believe that's true. The Bible says that walking in the kingdom of, of heaven is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus is the one who, at a wedding, turned water into wine. It's not just about monastic asceticism uh, in English. It's not just about people treating themselves harshly, thinking they're going to win credit with God. God wants to bless you. But have you submitted your eating to the Lord? Have you asked Him? What do you want? I noticed that I had to start walking with the Holy Spirit of when to stop. Because, I, you know, I had been an athlete, so I had to stuff myself. Oh, cheeseburger, cheeseburger, cheeseburger. I stuffed myself. You know, my motto was, you got to eat big to get big. And that had a very destructive impact on me. And so I started, in my meals, I'd say, you know, this isn't the one time I'm going to tune you out, Lord. I'm going to walk with you. And I just feel him gently say, son, stop. And I'd stop, and all of a sudden, I wouldn't feel like, ooh, at the end of the meal. You know, how many of you have ever felt like you need to be rolled out after a meal? Or, 
Yeah, I've had that. I go out to lunch with some friends, and all of a sudden, and you don't even hear the last 15 minutes of what they're saying because you're like, oh. you're out of the table trying to adjust your belt, you know, and hoping they're not. The Holy Spirit wants to put us in a place where he, he, he knows when to say when, right? He wants to help you. So let me ask you this. Have you asked the Lord about your eating? Have you asked the Lord? Some of us need to ask the Lord about our caffeine intake. Ooh. <laughs> Spirit of conviction is spell. <laughs> right? We, we need to let God be in control of these areas of our lives. Let's move on. Now, broadening it to other appetites because the stomach has been known since ancient times as the seat of our, of our appetites. It's not just the, the little digestive organ, but it's, it's where the appetites of the human life came from. Now, appetites aren't bad. Right? Some of us just think if we just beat down every appetite, then we'd be good. No, God put these appetites, but he wants them submitted to his lordship. I, I, I found that my appetites were destroying me and driving a wedge between me and the Lord. My, the main appetite that was destroying me was my appetite for sexual pleasure. I was exposed to things as, as a child, and so it was kind of crescendoed in my teen years. And so when I was 18 and, and really decided to give my life to Christ, I realized that the thing that was driving me apart was my seemingly addiction to sexual sin, to sexual involvement. And I just remember, you know, I'd read the scripture and I'd be so convicted, but then I'd go back into that sexual sin over and over and over again. I'd weep, I'd feel guilt, I'd feel shame, but I couldn't beat that power of addiction. And I find that most of us get to some this kind of point. And, and, and here's the hard thing, is that we, we start doubting God's power. Because we think, you know, when I got saved, I should have been set free from everything, right? You could defeat the power of sin and death. But here's the problem. When you get saved, there are immediate changes. But then there's other issues that remain there. And I believe a lot of times God lets them stay there. So we continue to go to the one who saved us, who saved our soul. We continue to go to him to deliver us. From evil. Now, God doesn't want us to, He doesn't just want to be a quick fix, right? And if everything changed the day we got saved, then we just say, Thank you, God. I took my God pill and now I'm done. But I find that God allows weakness and allows some things to not be transformed instantaneously so we will still go to Him daily. Because he knows if we go to him daily, then we'll walk in relationship with him. He knows if we walk in relationship with him, we'll receive his love. If we receive his love, we'll be transformed into being loving people. Then we'll change the world around us. Are you following me? <laughs> Some of you have thought, you know, I'm the only person that won't be changed. I want to tell you that that's a lie. Listen to what the book of Romans chapter 7 says. This is Paul the Apostle, the writer of much of the New Testament, he writes this. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good as it is. It's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. 
For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. Anyone confuse you? <laughs> but the evil I don't want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Keep going. So I find this law of Lord. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Exclamation point. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me. Say, delivers me. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now here's the deal. This is Paul as a believer writing this. Some of us have failed to see this. We thought, when I get saved, I get totally transformed. No, that's why we're doing a series called Extreme Life Makeover. Because we've got a bunch of believers in this room, including myself, that need to be made over by the Lord. He does immediately bring transformation in our lives when we come to Christ. But there are other areas where we say, I know what to do, and I don't do it. And I know what not to do, and I do it. Ah, what's wrong with me? I'm a wretched man! Exclamation point. That's, that we feel like Paul. I want to tell you, if you feel like that today, you're in good company with one of the greatest Christians of all time who wrote half the New Testament. That is the state we're in. But Jesus wants to deliver you. He wants to deliver you. I saw this wonderful story in a book the other day. It was so powerful. I was thinking about reading it to you guys. And then two weeks ago, I found it illustrated in a, in a beautiful short movie. So I want to show this to you for a moment because I think it perfectly illustrates the story. There was once a great and noble king whose land was terrorized by a crafty dragon. The scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with his fiery breath. Helpless victims ran from their burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. Those devoured instantly were considered more fortunate than those carried back to the dragon's lair to be devoured at his leisure. The king led his sons and knights in many valiant battles against the dragon. But one day, riding alone in the forest, one of the king's sons heard his name heard low and soft. In the shadows of the trees lay the dragon. The creature's heavy-lidded eyes focused on the prince, and the reptilian mouth stretched into a friendly smile. Don't be alarmed, said the dragon, as gray wisps of smoke rose from his nostrils. I am not what your father thinks. What are you then? asked the prince, slowly drawing his sword as he pulled in the reins to keep his fearful horse from bolting. I am pleasure, said the dragon. Ride my back, and you will experience more than you ever imagined. Come now, I have no harmful intentions. I seek a friend. Someone to share flights with. Have you ever dreamed of flying? Ever longed to soar in the clouds? Visions of soaring high above the hills drew the prince hesitantly from his horse. The dragon laid out a great wing to serve as a ramp to his rigid back. Between the spiny projections, the prince found a secure seat. Then the creature snapped his powerful wings twice and launched them into the sky. The prince's apprehension melted into awe and exhilaration. From then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly, 
For how could he tell his father, his brothers, or the knights that he had befriended the enemy? The prince felt separate from them all. Their concerns were no longer his concerns. Even when he wasn't with the dragon, he spent less time with those he loved and more time alone. Eventually, the skin on the prince's legs became calloused from gripping the rigid back of the dragon, and his hands grew rough and hardened. After many nights of riding, he discovered scales growing on the backs of his hands. With dread, he realized what would happen if he were to continue, so he resolved to never return to the dragon again. But after a few nights of resisting, he again sought out to the dragon, having been tortured with desire. And so this transpired many times over, and no matter what his determination, the prince eventually found himself pulled back as if by the course of an invisible web. Silently, patiently, the dragon always waited. One cold, moonless night, their excursion became a foray against a sleeping village. Torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils, the dragon roared with delight when the terrified victims fled from their burning homes. Swooping in, the serpent belched again, and flames engulfed a cluster of screaming villagers. The prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the carnage. In the pre-dawn hours, when the prince crept back from his flights with the dragon, the road outside his father's castle usually remained empty, but not tonight. Terrified refugees streamed into the protective walls of the castle. The prince attempted to slip through the crowd to close himself in his chambers, but some of the survivors stared and pointed toward him. He was there, one woman cried out. I saw him on the back of the dragon. Others nodded their heads in angry agreement. Horrified, the prince saw that his father, the king, was in the courtyard holding a bleeding child in his arms. The king's face mirrored the agony of his people as his eyes found the prince's. The prince began to weep, brokenhearted, as he realized how much pain he had caused the father. He never looked to see the dragon again. The palace guards apprehended him as if he were some common thief. They brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on the throne. The people on every side cried out against the prince. Banish him, he heard one of his own brothers angrily cry out. Burn him alive, other voices shouted. As the king rose from his throne, the crowd fell silent in expectation that a sentence of death would surely be handed down. The prince, who could not bear to look his father in the eyes, stared at the stones on the ground. Take off your gloves and your tunic, the king commanded. The prince obeyed slowly, dreading that his guilt would be uncovered before the kingdom. He had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Sounds of revulsion rippled through the crowd at the sight of the prince's thick-scaled skin and the ridge growing along his spine. The king walked toward his son, and the prince steeled himself, fully expecting a backhanded blow, even though he had never been struck by his father before. Instead, his father embraced him and wept, and he held his son tightly. In shock and disbelief, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder. Do you wish to be free from the dragon, my son? The prince answered in despair. I wished it many times, but there is no hope for me. Not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the serpent alone. Father, after what I've done, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I am half beast, sobbed the prince. But his father replied, my blood runs in your veins. My nobility has always been stamped deep within your soul. With his face buried in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowd. The dragon is crafty, 
Some fall victim to his wiles and some to his violence. There will be mercy this night for all who wish to be free. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. To his amazement, he recognized an older brother, one who was known throughout the kingdom for his onslaughts against the dragon in battle and for his many good deeds. And many others came, some weeping, others hanging their head. But the king embraced them all. this way, I believe all over this room, there are people that have dragons that are enslaving And King Jesus wants to forgive you and set you free. He just gave you four quick keys, four different ways that I've seen Jesus set people free. I can preach long messages on each of these, so I don't have time for that. I'm just going to kind of give you the bullet point. We've got to come to Jesus. That's the answer. But the first is through a power encounter. That's really what happened to me with my sexual addiction. I came, I cried out, I said, Holy Spirit, if you're real, I need you to deliver me, no matter how crazy it looks. And it happened. He took away that desire, and I was free for years from my sexual addiction before I married Steph. This um, book in the bookstore, I wanted to give you resources. This book, Chasing the Dragon, is a story of Jackie Pollinger. Some of the some of you would blow your mind to read the story. She went to the walled city of Hong Kong. She'd leave addicts to the Lord, but then she'd pray that they'd get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the way that they would come off of heroin and cocaine is by praying in tongues. So many people were set free that BBC... The, the British broadcaster channel did a massive documentary. She basically shut down the whole walled city through the power of the spirit. Now, I think most of us would want that way, but it doesn't always happen this way. A second way that I've seen God set many people free is through intensive discipleship and understanding our identity. Well, let's go, let's go to number two. I think I skipped number two. It's through inner healing prayer. Um, this is something we've done a ton of, where God actually takes you back into the painful memories that you've had, the things that often, the reason we get into addictions is they're a painkiller. You were abused as a child, so you escape into something that brings you pleasure to run away. And if God can take that pain and extract it from your heart, then you can be set free to run after him. Bethel Church in Reading, that Sozo Prayer, we have our own biblical inner healing model. But many people, I find, need to come and have God do an inner healing work so that they can be set free from addiction. Number three, the, th the third key I often see is intensive discipleship into our identity in Christ. Neil Anderson's book, and we have these, The Bondage Breaker, Youth Edition, Victory Over Darkness. He gives a biblical underpinning of who we are in Christ. And many of us see our identity wrong. Like this young man, he had to understand he was a prince. He was a son of the king. And I can come to the king. I tell you what, that's also through discipleship. It's through life groups. You can't get free on your own. And so God uses that powerfully. And the last one, uh, which God is using in a wonderful way in our city, is professional counseling. 
I got this uh, video from Dr. Melinda Reinecke, her book, Terribles. We've ordered that. It's a very powerful book, and we've also used this in our training school. This book by Dr. Cloud and Dr. Townsend, Unlocking Your Family Patterns. See, many people fall into addiction because it's something that was in their family of origin, and they walk right into it. And by understanding what's happened in your family and going through professional counseling, often we're set free. But here's my question to end our time. My question is this. Are you willing to do what it takes to let King Jesus set you free? The Bible says this. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. Are you willing to do what God is calling you to do today, to be set free from the dragons in your life. Some of you, it's just a, a little step, maybe you're just a little out of control. Some of you don't know if you'll live. Some of you, it's life or death. If you don't get set free, you might end up in the grave because of your addiction. But I want to tell you, King Jesus wants to bring freedom. He wants to be our God and not our stomach. I'm going to stand up.